So good afternoon, everybody. Why don't we go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Asking Our Lady to intercede for us as we begin this time of retreat. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So can everybody hear me? Yes, all right, good. Well, so uh, thanks, Tassie, for that great introduction. It really is a delight to be with all of you here as we begin this retreat. It really is an honor uh, to be able to preach the retreat for the community. So the truth is, I'm going to put my stuff down here. Uh, as you saw in your little, your little folders, uh, we were going to have a retreat on spiritual childhood. And I'd had generally most everything sort of come up sort of from a retreat that I had done uh, earlier in the summer. But then, of course, as we know, uh, about three weeks ago, uh, the scandal hit, or the revelation of the, the deeper scandal in the church. And so I, like I'm sure a lot of you, have been thinking and praying about it. And, and I realized that maybe I needed to redirect my uh, retreat. I wasn't too excited about that. I'd already kind of had it written. I was ready to just have an easy couple of weeks. But I was praying about it, and so I read an article, some of you may have read it, it was in the Wall Street Journal about two weeks ago from George Weigel, um, who incidentally is coming to speak at Wisdom in a few weeks, and it's about the scandal in the church. And in it, he has this one paragraph where he talks about how the scandal or the revelation of all that we've been seeing is a challenge to the faith of a lot of people. And he said, the truth is, it probably shouldn't be a challenge to your faith. Instead, it should be a challenge, quote, to understanding what the church really is, unquote. And I thought that was really profound. Is it not that certain people's faith is not going to be shaken? However, this really, if you're going to have your faith shaken, if it's going to shake to your core, it really comes down to a proper understanding or sort of maybe nuancing or developing our understanding of what the church really is. And so that's what I decided to do, wanting to talk a little bit about the church. And I'm not here to give you something purely theoretical, although today will be a fair bit theoretical. But I decided that I wanted to really help us talk about or understand how to face the scandal in the church. And I'm not just the scandal that's in the news, but any type of scandal. Scandal meaning stumbling block. Particularly how to face and deal with the reality of sin in the church. And so that's, I think, really kind of the topic. If we're going to call this anything, maybe we'll talk about spiritual childhood, but really on the reality, or facing, or wrestling with the reality of sin in the church. So here's sort of the caveat. Because I maybe followed the Holy Spirit, if you want to blame it on him, we'll see. It depends at the end of the retreat. You'll see if you want to blame it on him or blame it on me. That, that I didn't really write any talks. I took ideas that I had and sort of put them together and kind of wrote this talk um, about two hours ago. So um, the other ones 
sort of in my mind, not completely down, but I'll have a chance to do it. This is how I kind of do it normally when I do a retreat, trying to follow the spirit. So if I'm rambling and kind of go in all these different directions, well, y'all are used to it. Y'all listen to Champagne talk all the time. <laughs> so, so, the, so it really, it really won't be that bad. And so as I was praying about it, so we're going to get down to the meat of this. As I was praying about this and getting ready for it, this, this retreat on ecclesiology, and I was really excited because normally when, when a priest preaches retreats, or at least I do, sometimes we get people who are very devout, some people are staring into space, some people have no idea what's going on, but I know the members of the community uh, are very striving for holiness, striving for a deeper understanding of the faith, and I'm able to go a little bit deeper, so I'm looking forward to it. And so we're going to talk about ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And it's a very, very broad topic. But as I was praying about it after reading Weigel's article, I remembered an essay that I read from a book back in the day when I was in seminary. Some, one from a, one of my favorite Catholic authors. If you've listened to me speak, you know, I've quoted him before, uh, the great uh, Swiss theologian Hans Erzon Balthasar. I saw, Champagne, you got all like the, the communios that are out of print. I'm going to come, I'm gonna come copy some one day. Uh, that was his journal along with Ratzinger. But in his, his book on essays and theology, he has this really long essay, and I don't necessarily say that y'all should read this, but the essay is called Costa Meritrix. Costa Meritrix. And that is Latin, Costa, cha chaste, chastity. Meritrix means whore. So the essay is called The Chaste Whore. And this is a title that, that was used by the church fathers to talk about the church, particularly the reality of sin in the church and how the church can be holy, can be the bride of Christ, but sin at the same time, sometimes some very decrepit sin can exist in the church. And so what I want to do a little bit today is talk about this duality, this seeming oxymoron of the church as the costumeratrix, as the chaste whore. How is this shocking title able to be used to describe the church? And so in Balthazar's essay, which is mostly a, comp a compilation of quotes from the church fathers, he begins by looking at the Old Testament. And, and the Old Testament, of course, the fathers drew a lot from this. And I'm not going to get into a lot of details, but I'm going to give you the passages and you can go do your own research. In the Old Testament, we know that the writers use the spousal analogy, using the, the, the analogy of man and woman in marriage and their relationship to describe the relationship of Yahweh, who is the bridegroom, with his church, who is the bride that union of man and woman describing Israel as the bride. Well, sometimes, if you read the Old Testament, particularly the fun parts, you'll notice that Israel was not faithful, that Israel began to act like a whore, a harlot, instead of the bride. 
And this is some very, very earthy language. There's a lot of earthy language in the Bible. That's all the stuff that you don't read at Mass. They leave all that good stuff out. So you read the Old Testament. Is that it became very true that when they would practice idolatry, often with these sort of pagans, cults that were around there, that it was, it was adultery. It was harlotry. They used that analogy. And again, these were fertility cults. They did some things that were not very nice. And so when Israel would go and, and, and tamper with these gods or start worshiping these fake altars or these big sacred poles and all this, this was adultery. This was harlotry. And so you're going to see it all through Scripture. The prophet Hosea. What does God tell Hosea to do? Go marry that harlot. That's going to be a way in your body you're going to be showing me marrying Israel the way she's behaving, the way she's going around and acting immoral. So Hosea, a whole book of the Bible, a whole prophet on this idea of marrying the harlot. Ezekiel, particularly if you want to read some very colorful language, Ezekiel chapter 16 and then chapter 23. The prophet uses some very, very graphic language to talk about her, Israel, like a camel in heat, running around, cavorting after her masters. Some really, really graphic language, this idea of harlotry in the Old Testament. Probably, though, one of the, the most, the one that he spends the most time on is this image, though, of the, the prostitute, the one who is not completely evil. And that is Rahab. Remember Rahab the prostitute when the three spies come in from Joshua? She houses them and then puts that red card on the door so that they are safe. So the church fathers saw this as an image of the church. The church who is the harlot, but also that safe refuge. Sort of like the, the red card, like the Passover, the blood of Jesus, marking it out, redeeming her. And, of course, all of this then pointing to the New Testament. And we see certain themes, not as graphic, of course, but Mary Magdalene, who some will interpret was the one who was the prostitute who had the seven demons put out for her. The Samaritan woman, although wasn't a, a whore, she was unchaste, had the different husbands. And then in the book of Revelation, the, the arch-whore Babylon sort of connecting it there to, in the Old Testament, the arch whore Jerusalem, who was out cavorting with other, 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 other husbands. Completely, completely sinful. And so you can go in the Old Testament and the New Testament and see this theme running all the way through it. But Balthazar and other fathers are trying to say the church is a whore. Sometimes there's sin in the church. You're using it to describe sin. But the fact of the matter is, the bridegroom did not give up on the bride. And Christ came and gave his life in order that she might be purified, gave us the gift of baptism to purify the bride for the wedding. The grace that transforms her from the whore in the Old Testament and to that spotless bride. But yet that great mystery is we'll see how the two can exist together. And so we've got to Admit this reality. And this is admitting the reality of the sin of the church. That the church is not pure spotlessness and perfection. Somehow both that 
and sin. Some pretty grave sin can exist in the church even in her greatest and highest members in the hierarchy. I forgot, was it Francis de Sales who might have said this, or it was Vincent de Paul. The church is not a gallery of saints, but a hospital for sinners. Both are going to be able to coexist the weeds and the wheat at the same time. But we can't despair. We can't say, well, there's so much sin in the church, the church is a whore. No, she's chaste. And so just like sin does exist in the church, so does great holiness. And it might be difficult for us to be able to say that and admit it at certain times when we seem to be surrounded by sin. But the truth is we see holiness. You see holiness in this room. We all know people who are striving for holiness. They may not be perfect. They may not be saints. But they are striving for holiness. And we want it. But the truth is, even in the holiest person that we may know, sin still exists in that person. Maybe not criminal activity or horrendous vice. Maybe not mortal sin, but there's still sin. How can we say that there is that chastity, that pure chastity, that sinlessness that exists in the church? Well, in that book on the explanations of theology, the chapter before the one on costumeratrix is entitled, Who is the Church? Which is interesting, because normally we would say, What is the church? How do we describe the church? And I'm not saying that that is necessarily wrong, but it's very easy for us to see the church as an institution primarily, sometimes as a bureaucracy. And even the words that we use, we'll talk about the church as an it. What Balthazar is trying to say is that the church primarily is not an it, but a, but a, but a she, a person. And the church is personified, concretized in whom? Our Lady. It's the Blessed Virgin Mary who is the image, the icon of the church. And in fact, all that the church is and should be is brought to life in her. When you look at Our Lady, you are seeing the church. You can look at Revelation 12, the woman clothed with the sun. And so she becomes not just the symbol, but the embodiment. She is the church and her sinlessness and her receptivity and her fidelity. She, in a certain sense, Balthazar will say, preserves holiness in herself. No matter how much other sin there may be, because she is there, because she exists, because she is the icon and personification of the church, we can say the church is holy. That there's always hope. And so this, this beautiful image that you can almost take of Our Lady, you've seen it with Our Lady, the mantle wrapped around like people in the church. Imagine wrapping the apostles. This is the image. Mary is the sinless one. And in that grace and that sinlessness, because she is the mediatrix of all grace, wraps the church. Even though there's sin in the church under her mantle, it's her sinlessness, her grace, that enables us to call the church truly chaste. So does this make sense to you all? I don't want to scandalize anybody. This is the language of the church for all the Jews, and it's a very valuable language for helping us understand how sin does and can exist in the church. It works along together and exists. We never can despair 
because Our Lady is there. It's not only our example, but that personification, that embodiedness of holiness. Now, there's another analogy that the church fathers use to describe the church. Uh, also describe Our Lady, too, but we're not going to focus on that so much. And this is one we're going to talk about more a little bit later on. And it's something that Cardinal Ratzinger, of course, who became Pope Benedict, talks about in an essay, which is going to be the last thing. We have a little reading each time, the last thing that we're going to read. And if you don't read anything else that I hand out to you, that's the thing that you're going to want to read, the stuff for Sunday. And I'm not going to talk about what he says in it, but I'm going to talk about this analogy he uses. He draws from the church fathers. The church fathers describe the church as the moon, the luna, all right? And so, for the church fathers, why is the moon symbolic of the church? For one, the moon doesn't light itself. It's not a source of radiance. All of its light does what? It comes from the sun. And so in the same way, the church as the bride all of her glory, all of her radiance comes from the S-O-N, from the Son of God. But the moon just doesn't take all the brightness. What does she do? She reflects it to the earth. And so we can see it. We can perceive it. She channels that light. She's that mediatrix of sun, the sun. And so the church is that resplendent glory, that sacrament, as Vatican II will talk about, the quasi-sacrament, to the world, for Christ. You see the reflection of Christ in the church. And, and, and the moon, when you're there on that, 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 that's, that cloudless night, it's up in the sky, you're not in the middle of the city, how big and beautiful it is, how mesmerizing. This for the church fathers is a great image of what the church is. But this is where it gets a little interesting. He says, or he begins to say, that after, you know, we can understand this, the church fathers, though, this was 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, and he's writing this essay in the late 60s, and he talks about how we've had some moon probes. We know what the surface of the moon looks like. And what does it look like? Lifeless. Death, cratered. I'm going to read the, the, the section from it, and you'll be able to read this a little bit later on. He says, In the age of moon voyages, an expansion of the comparison suggests itself, the comparison of, of church to moon, in which the specific features of our situation, including the reality of the church and the sin of the church, can be made visible through this contrast of physical and symbolic thought. The moon voyager or moon probe discovers that the moon is only stone, desert, sand, mountains, but not light. And in fact, in and of itself, it is nothing more, only desert, sand, stone. And yet it is also light, not in itself, but from another source and to another purpose. And it remains so even in the age of space travel. It is what it itself is not. The other thing that is not is its own, is still its reality, too as not as its own. But he gets a little bit too complicated with his language there. And so he's asked, 
Is that not a very exact image of the church? Someone who drives over and extracts samples with a moon probe can discover only desert sand and stone, the all-too-human foibles of man and his history with its deserts, its dust, and its heights. That is hers. And yet it is not the essential thing about her. The decisive thing is that she, although only sand and stone herself, is still the light that comes from the Lord. That's powerful. I mean, you could, I could just shut up right now. Y'all probably would like that, but I worked hard on this. It's the same thing with the church. Yes, the church is big and beautiful and bright, but if you get down to the nitty-gritty, if you drive the moon probe over it, you're going to see humanity. You're going to see rocks. You're going to see craters. There ain't going to be life coming from it. It's sin. It's the death and destruction that comes from sin. But that's not what you focus on. What you focus on is the light. That's what we recognize the moon for. That's what's so important. Now, we're going to see this more later in the retreat. But you're probably saying, well, Father, this all sounds great. I like it. It's a wonderful reflection. I'm going to go pray my rosary, and I'm going to think about the moon and about the camels and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) But how does this help us, me and you, deal with and overcome sin and scandal in the church? And again, this is not just about the scandal, but any kind of scandal or sin of the church. It's nice, but we want something more practical. Practical. So that's what we want to do. I want to offer you some practical ways of understanding this. Now this, I'm going to try to get to, not too complicated, but hopefully you all can understand this. Because just like both of these analogies, the chased whore and the moon and the two sides of the moon or different ways of looking at it, it shows us that it's all a matter, or primarily here, a matter of perspective. Depending on which perspective you have, you're going to see things potentially in a different light. Hassey said that, you know, I studied in Rome, and I was very blessed to study in Rome. And one of the things that I enjoyed, I take people through St. Peter's. If you've ever been to St. Peter's, before you go to the Basilica, you have that great piazza with the Bernini, the, the, the architect, the big columns that come from out of it, like 140 columns, massive columns. This is way before computers or anything. And, and if you notice, you walk and you see, and you can see the depths of the columns. They run four deep on either side. But there's one, the two places in the piazza, and there's a little disc marking that most people don't see it. If you stand there, the columns perfectly line up. You step one foot away, and they're off. It's amazing, and I used to show people this because it was pretty neat, but as a way to understand, so often things don't make sense to us, but if we change our perspective, if we stand in the right place, then whoa, it's all gonna come into line. And so that's what I wanna talk about, perspective when it comes to this idea of the chase tour and the idea of the moon. So again, maybe I can write this down and it might be able to make a lot of sense or more sense. I'm going to erase this. I am recording this. That's why I'm carrying this with me. So for your edification, maybe later on. 
if we're going to look at the church, how about we just do this? We're going to take the first one, the whore, and then chastity, and then the moon is luminous, and then the moon is rock. It's so easy to look and call the church a whore from the perspective at a distance. People who are not in the church, who are not Christian, who are not Catholic, who don't care. Look at the church. Look how sinful it is. It's decrepit. It's disgusting. You read in the media, throughout history, people who don't care for the church, who are not necessarily in the church, are the ones who are more likely to call her a whore, to see just that side. Just that side. But the people who are in the church, in the church, are going to be the ones who tend to see the chastity, the goodness, that they're close, they can see it from a different perspective. They see the holiness, they see the goodness, they live in life at the sacraments, they understand who the Blessed Virgin Mary is, that they're involved, they're not far away. And the same thing when it comes to luminous. When do you see the church as luminous? From a distance. Whoa, look at that. But if you're up close, if you're on your moon probe, what are you seeing? The church is rock. The moon is rock. Dead, cratered, desert, decrepit. And so even though they're both analogous, here's what's interesting. You see different things depending where you are, but here's the little game. Whore is bad, chastity is good, luminous is good, rock is bad. They're different. Sometimes if you look at the church according to one analogy, far away it's good, the other far away is bad. The other, if you're close, it's good, the other one, if you're close, it is bad. So my argument is this and this is where it gets practical. If we want to be able to deal with and overcome and live with scandal and sin of the church, whether we like it or not, we are going to have to get close. The more distance we have, the further away we are, the more detached we are, the harder it is going to be to be able to see the goodness, the virginity, the purity of the church, and also to be able to admit the sin, the weakness, the imperfection, even the grave scandal, and not be shocked and leave the church. Does this make sense? The truth is, is at a distance, it's so easy for us to paint in these very, very broad strokes. Very, very broad strokes. But the closer we get, it's much harder to do that. In the particular, it's much more difficult to do that. You can see Mary, but you can also see sinless sinfulness. You can see holy and good people, but you can also see weakness. But you've got to get close to be able to see that. There's actually an insight that came from a homily that I read a few weeks ago from Cardinal Ratzinger. He 
He talks about that, how amazing it is. From a distance, the church looks terrible. But if you get really close, you can see there's some really, really good people there. And the Lord seems in the distance to not be working in the world, to not be working in the church, to abandon the church. But if you get close, boy, we all know people the Lord's work tremendous miracles in their lives, in our lives on the personal level. But we've got to be able to get close. Because people who are close know the goodness, they know the weakness, and they know that they both can exist together. But it's confusing, though, because as you get close, both of those opposites still exist. Chastity and the sinful behavior, the light and the dust and the dirt. But this, though, on the particular level, the closeness is where the scandal doesn't become something that we trip over, but something we can overcome. Something that we can overcome. But how? And so, anybody who was at Mass at Wisdom this weekend or heard my homily, I told this little story about how the football season's starting. I was talking to one of the football coaches, and he was talking about the people who, who come to football games are either one of two types of people. They're either fans or they're spectators. Everybody at Tiger Stadium or at the Cajun Field or whatever or the Superdome, they're either going to be fans or spectators. I said, man, you're right, because the same thing is true with the faith. The people who are at church are either fans or spectators. Now, I can go in a long analogy of this, which is interesting. Fan, which is the abbreviation of the word fanatic, comes from the Latin word fanum, which means temple. Fanaticus is someone or something who is of the temple. So it's ironic. So the church today, the holy temple is what? The sports stadium. So it's really good if you're a fan there, if you're a fanatic. That's the new temple. But if you're a fanatic about faith, that's bad. It's a negative connotation. And so that's a whole sort of way we can look at that. But what's interesting, though, is spectator. The word spectator comes from the Latin spectare, which means to watch or to observe. You're kind of at a distance. You're disengaged. A fan is going to be there right in the middle of things. They're going to be on the field, close to the field. They're going to be cheering. They're going to know the players. They're going to see them do great things. They're going to see them mess up. And they're not going to care for the most part. They're going to still stick by their team. Think of the people who saw how terrible the Saints were for so many years. They, 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 go to, they may be wearing a bag over their head, but they're still going to the game. That's a fan. The spectator, ah, it doesn't really matter. Comes and goes. Why? Because there's a distance. The spectator is the one who sees the moon luminous, but is the one who's the fan who's on the ground and sees it dirty, who sees it dead, the craters. The, the spectator is the one who can sit back and say the church is a whore, but the fan is the one who sees the goodness, who sees the purity, who sees the holiness in the individuals that are there. And so what we need to do is to be able to be fans and not spectators. 
the ones who get in close and who know the good and the bad and are edified by the good and are not scandalized by the bad because they realize this is part of what the church is. Both have to exist together. But if we're not engaged, if we're just spectators sitting back watching, disengaged, it's going to be so easy for us to judge, to look down upon, to cast aspersions against. But if we're there, we still are going to call sin a sin. But we're not going to have as big of a chance to have a stumbling block. Is it possible for a fan to lose their enthusiasm? Yeah, it is. We might talk about that a little bit later on towards the end. We're not going to focus on that, but you get what I'm talking about. So this is in general. But how do we apply it to the specific scandal? Because the thing is, is we can talk about sin and corruption and evil and imperfection of the church. But the scandal that we are facing or hearing about so much deals with the clergy. Granted, there's sin in the laity. There may be sin in some of the sisters. We're not too sure about that. It's a joke, sister. <laughs> Y'all need some coffee. Y'all be start laughing at my jokes tomorrow. Y'all laughed at my father's champagne jokes. I don't know where my, that's money. I know where that is. But it's about the priests and the bishops, the deacons, the clerics. That's what we are scandalized by. But the thing is, is the ones who are really frustrated and angry, we all may be, but the ones who are scandalized and will have a more of a chance of leaving the church and abandoning the church are the ones who are the spectators, the ones who are at a distance, who don't know individual priests, who've never talked to one, who don't even know what the priesthood is about, and maybe it's not even their fault. Did you realize how blessed we are, y'all are, to be able to have such intimate contact with the priest? People in the Northeast don't generally get that. What percentage of Catholics do you think really ever get to know one priest, much less two or three of them? Maybe 5%, possibly, possibly. And so what happens is they're at a distance. And as a result, when these types of things happen, no doubt, there are some terrible things, but it's so easy to see the church as a whore. So easy to do that because they're at a distance. And then whenever at a distance they see the holiness of the moon, the luminous thing, ah, this is false, it's fake. That's just them trumping themselves up. It's really, really easy to cast things down because, oh, well, they're just, even us, we're putting the priest on a pedestal. And sometimes priests do that by removing themselves, wanting to be treated better. And sometimes lay people do that also. That's putting a priest at a distance. They're all super holy. They're all saints. We're not. not we're not all corrupt. This is the truth. We're all striving for holiness. But we're human. we got rocks inside of us. we got craters. We're just like you. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be called to something greater or we should treat preachers like everybody else. I'm not saying that at all. But the fact of the matter is, if we get in close, we're going to be able to see the church from a different perspective. So even those who are in the church, again, who put priests on, on a pedestal in an unrealistic way, would priests fall are going to be scandalized 
Because what? They're putting themselves at a distance. Oh, look at the luminous priests. They're there. No. You've got to be able to get in close to know the priest. So that's the key, is to get in close. Not only, I think, for, for lay people to say, I want to get to know the priest. Now, don't do it in a really weird way. Nor the priest need to reveal every single thing. But there's got to be some mutuality there to get to know the priest and the clergy, even the bishops maybe, in their goodness, but also in their weakness. And they're striving for holiness, but also they pre-sin. We're not perfect. We're on the journey with everyone else. But most people never do that because they're just spectators. They're never fans. They're not engaged. Y'all are different. I understand that. But that's the encouragement that you can give to other people. Hey, get to know Father. Get to know what a priest does. People think we're like aliens from out of space or something. You know, they don't know what a priest does. The number one question I always get when I go to kids and give talks on vocations, Father, what do you do for fun? Because it's like they don't think priests have fun. That's basically from what Hassie said. It's all I do, you know. <laughs> it's all I do. I'm, I'm grumpy and I have fun. That's true. But the thing is, the person who has the right attitude is going to live with it. Remember St. Therese when she went to Rome and she wrote, so I was with many priests, and they were good priests, but boy, oh boy, we need to pray for them. She was, you know, she probably saw them drink maybe a little bit too much wine and a little bit too much pasta when they were in Rome. That's what priests like to do when they're in Rome. But the truth is, because she knew them, because she was there, she didn't judge. She didn't say, I'm out of the church, I hate priests, it's scandalous. Because she got to know them in their holiness and in their weakness. And so we're not here to excuse sin. In no way, shape, or form do I want someone who's listening to this to say, Father's saying that these cardinals and these bishops who've done these terrible things get away with it, or these priests. I'm not saying that at all. There is crime, and people need to be held accountable, and we're going to talk about that more. But we have got to understand the way we're going to overcome this is we've got to get in close. We've got to be fans. We can't be spectators, not only for the church as a whole, but for our experience and understanding the scandal that we are living through now and potentially we are going to be living through over the coming months and years. And so, sort of trying to begin to land the plane here, when people will ask, and I get this all the time in the past several weeks, Father, what can we as lay people do to, to help, to make a change? Well, there are a number of things that we can do, but... The main thing that I'm going to say is this, is what I've been repeating. Quit being a spectator and start being a fan. Not just when it comes to, like, taking Father out for dinner. Not, you yes, you can, as long as you go to Ruth's Chris. That's you take Father Sean Vine. <laughs> he likes the tomahawk steak. <laughs> but the church as a whole, you've got to get involved. Quit sitting on the sidelines. You know, it's so easy to judge from the sidelines. Priest is supposed to be holy, and then you're disappointed when they're not, or the church is just sinful, and then you never get to experience holiness within the church. But particularly, get to know priests and bishops. Either maybe read a book about what, what the life of a priest is like. What do we do? And maybe this is part of the responsibility that priests need to be more open, accountable, and vulnerable. I'm not saying reveal everything. We don't have any secrets to hide. But, you know, I tell, I, I, that's one of the reasons I think I haven't seen the students at Wisdom be too shocked or scandalized by this, because they live with me and Father Pelsier. I mean, 
They live with us. They're there at 7. I kick them out at 10 or 11. They see me when I'm hangry. They see me when I'm tangry. Tired angry. They see me in good days and bad days. They see everything. And so they're not shocked or scandalized because they know the priest is human, probably all too human. But so very few people get that experience. You all get the experience to hang out with Champagne all the day long and the brothers and the priests. Not a lot of people get that. To encourage people to. I'm not saying they need to go banging down the priest's door all the time. He's got things to do. But at least take some time to get to know the priest as a person. Maybe even the bishop as a person. Find some way that you can come together. Right after the ordination, some of y'all probably saw the video that was on Facebook that we posted of the four guys from Wisdom after the ordination. They were dancing. Wasn't as funny as the one when Schumacher got tased by Brent Smith. That was much funnier. <laughs> but I got 220,000 views. We've never had anything like that. And I realized, why do people love this video so much? Even though some people were scandalized by it, whatever. They were showing their humanity. People just think priests are like this all the time. Whoa, Father can have fun. He can dance. They were drawn to that. And I think that's part of it, the getting the closeness. They were able to get in close. The video was right there. This is what priests are like. They can have celebrate too. And people were edified by that. But the flip side is, when you get to know them, sometimes they don't dance well. Or sometimes they are in bad moods, and sometimes they sin, and sometimes they commit crimes, and I'm never making an excuse for this, but both come together. You can't have one without the other. But unless you get in close, you're not going to understand it. We've got to be able, if we get in close, to accept the good and the bad, the strength and the weakness, the holiness and the sin, because they work together. And guess what? It's in all of our lives. Not just the priests and the deacons not just the sisters, it's the church. The clergy is just a subset of it. We're no different than anybody else. Quit putting us on pedestals. We need to quit acting like we're on pedestals. And to be able to start collaborating more, and this is, this is the ideal. This is why I think even there are certainly people who are going to be struck, shocked and scandalized, but this is what I think needs to be happening here. If more lay people got to live and work with priests and religious, you wouldn't be freaking out like other people are. Maybe you would be. But then again, you can talk to Father and know you're safe, and he can walk through it with you. Does that make sense? I think this is the key. Y'all are really doing it right. The more we have of this, the better it would be. So in conclusion, I give, uh, I'm going to try to, or I give an, a, a little reading for each talk. Some are longer than others. You don't have to read it all. Father Champagne, I think, will pass it out. He has it. Now, this is from an essay written by uh, Father Jacques Survey. And it was written about five or six years ago, actually four years ago, I'm sorry. Um, and it's sort of on the scandals or sin of the church and this idea of the church's costumeratrix. And it's only the last part of it, the last couple of pages. I don't want you to have to read the whole entire thing, even though you can if you want. I think you can go dig up and maybe find it online. And it's just so insightful, and, and, and he passed it around, but you can get it. It's just really the last page, because he says, like, hey, there's sin of the church. John Paul II and Benedict has admitted their sin, but, but how do we overcome that? And he talks about Mary. Mary is that embodiment of the church. She's the one that we go to. But this last page, he talks about 
even though we understand Mary in the church and that she's there and she maintains holiness in the church, Balthazar talks about the fact is, and he's writing this in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s, things are changing, y'all. The media is shining the spotlight on the church. It's funny that he used that word because of the movie from a few years back. And that you can't hide it anymore. Now, he's not talking about necessarily just he's talking about the sins that we're facing with. He's talking about sin and imperfection. You can't hide it anymore. So what should the church's response be? And he's almost talking about his institutions. So if you look at 662, the last page, if in an earlier ages a loyal ecclesial prudence could still be expressed in an apologetics that veiled and disguised certain aspects of the life of the church and individual Christians. You know, we're going to pretend that sin doesn't exist. Now, I'm not talking about hiding crimes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just admitting our own sinfulness, that priests are not perfect, that religious sisters are not perfect, that there's sin in the church, even in the highest levels. Nowadays, the real scandal consists in the fact that the church at all costs wants to hide the truth of what is common knowledge, that we're sinners, that this is not perfection of the church, and sometimes there's a real deep filth and cancer. The scandal can be erased, if at all, only through humility. And so, he is not saying, I don't think, survey, nor Balthazar, that we need to go and just throw priests under the bus. I think there's a tendency to do that. But to admit, hey, guess what? We're not perfect. We're the Costa Meritrix. We're journeying. We're on the way. Truly, there's holiness in us. There are people who are holy and who strive for holiness. But we're the luminous rock. They both exist in us. Because the thing is, is you can't hide it. They are going to expose it. And so the Lord does allow a pruning. He does allow a purification. As we're going to see, I'm not saying that we should turn the church's fate over to the state. Not at all. That usually doesn't work out well. And I'm not saying that every little sin needs to be exposed. There's, there is there's, there's people's good names. There can be false accusations. Things that are truly criminal need to be brought out. People need to face justice. I'm not denying that at all. But the fact of the matter is, we got to admit as a church, we've made mistakes, we're not perfect, and to learn humility. Because we're going to get taught it if, if we don't go ahead with it. And so what I'm going to propose in this, this is of the church's response. It's all of our response. Being humble. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. Because if we're willing to do that, others will probably be much more merciful to us. Not necessarily, but much more merciful to us. So this is what I want you all to do. I know everyone's tired. I like to give a little homework at the end of each talk. I want you to spend some time between now and tomorrow meditating on that apparent oxymoron, the chaste whore, the luminous rock. There is some meditation there, and, and, and hopefully drawing from it a deeper understanding of the reality of the church. And then in doing so, ask yourself, even though I'm involved in the community and I do my morning and evening prayer and 
I like to make fun of Father Champagne, whatever. Am I a fan or a spectator? Am I distancing myself and then judging? Or am I up close and understanding? Am I getting my hands dirty? Do I know the particular or the general? So the rest is the most sort of theoretical talk you'll have. The rest, I guess, in a certain sense, will be more practical. And each one will draw from a different theme of how we can practically address the reality of sin and the possibility of scandal within the church. The next one will probably be the most difficult one. It seems ironic it'll be the most difficult one, but I'm not given titles. I don't generally, part of the reason I, don't, I didn't tell you all what the titles were, for one, I haven't written the talks yet, but two, it would ruin the surprise. <laughs> So you gotta, you gotta know, how, you gotta know what's coming up. Like tomorrow morning, what's Father gonna talk about? How are we gonna deal with that? We're gonna talk about probably the most difficult message, one that I, I'll be honest, I'm even scared of preaching. If it wasn't this audience, I might not want to preach. But it is a very, very, very important message of how we deal not only with sin, but more particularly with the scandals. So why don't we go ahead? I think we're gonna have adoration of the church, correct, and then. I'll be hearing confessions, and I don't know if Father Steve or someone else, so uh, we'll just figure that out. Father Champagne, I think, will be exposed. So I want to go ahead and close the glory be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As the beginning is now, we shall be over without end. Amen. And so I promise more Father Champagne jokes because they get better laughs. laughs.